become death, the destroyer of worlds. I asked it of Julius Caesar. I demand it of you. Smell! Smells like victory. Let them eat cake. That's such nonsense. I would never say that. I will have one mistress here. We shall fight. And no master. We shall never surrender. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? First there was light, then there were moving images. Welcome to Moving Histories, a podcast where three film scholars grapple with the most complex film genre, one that seeks to do no less than transport us through time to consider who we are and how we got here. My name is John Trafton. I am a visiting assistant professor at Occidental College and the author of Movie Made Los Angeles. I'm Kim Nelson. I'm a professor of film at the University of Windsor, and I'm the author of Making History Move. And my name is Robert Burgoyne. I'm a retired professor. The last eight years of my career I spent at the University of St. Andrews uh, in the Department of Film Studies. I am the author, most recently, of the new American war film. It's about unleashing a strong force before the Nazis do. So for today's film, we're going to be looking at Oppenheimer. This is a film that I'm very excited to talk about. Why? Why? How about because this is the most important fucking thing that ever happened in the history of the world? How about that? One thing about this film that I find very interesting as someone fascinated by historical representation on film and the historical broader historical film genre is that this is a film that presents history as a chain reaction just like the mechanisms of the atomic bomb and so many fascinating narrative strategies for looking at history and writing history and showing how history is written and perceived from Christopher Nolan here but Briefly, let's get some uh, general thoughts on the film before we dive into what really I think is Christopher Nolan's masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a really brilliant film. I mean, we can roll up our sleeves here. We're really into a moving history. That's something that is about the cinepoetics of history. And it's not surprising because Christopher Nolan has always been obsessed with time. You know, his first film, Memento, was all about memory and time. So it was maybe just a matter of time before he would start doing historical films. I mean, you just have to get to the point where you can access those budgets. And if you have the ego to withstand the way people respond to historical films, then I feel like it's this challenge that that filmmakers want to take on. And you see that in this film. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world. Nothing in our research over three years supports that conclusion, except it's the most remote possibility. How remote? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. I'm going through the film for the third time now, and only on this third careful viewing have I been able to actually perceive the structure and uh, know how it's unfolding and what the uh, strategy, the narrative strategy is. 
it's really quite a complex work narratively. And one of the things that made it somewhat challenging the first two times I saw it was how early in the film Strauss is, or Strauss is introduced because he comes in, he's in the, I think the, the second scene in the film and his disclosure of all of his plotting, his strategizing, his undermining of Oppenheimer that motivates a certain narrative line. And what was surprising to me is that he actually didn't meet Oppenheimer until 1947. And long after the Manhattan Project, uh, long after the, the bombs had been dropped. But the film kind of weaves his story into the young Oppenheimer story in such a way that until I saw the film for the third time, it was uh, quite difficult for me to keep aware that Strauss was actually not involved in the Manhattan Project. So really, there's two main framing devices, and both are trials, if you will. One is Strauss being interviewed for the Commerce Secretary position that motivates a whole series of flashbacks. Senator from Wyoming, Admiral Strauss, I'm interested in your relationship with Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer. You met him in 1947? Correct. Dr. Oppenheimer. And the other is Oppenheimer being interviewed, persecuted really, by the the hearing that was set up to either renew or fail to renew his security clearance, which also motivates a whole series of flashbacks. So on the one hand, you've got Oppenheimer's, whose his testimony is really a confession, and he wants everybody to hear it. He wants everyone to hear his entire story. And with Strauss, it's his kind of being exposed through the questioning and answering. And so those are the two framing devices that motivate these long series of flashbacks where we get the more linear part of the story. Why don't you have a Nobel Prize? Why aren't you a general? They're making me one for this. Perhaps I'll have the same luck. The Nobel Prize for making a bomb? Alfred Nobel invented dynamite. Watching this film for uh, the second and then third time, uh, I was reminded of another uh, historical film, uh, albeit one about recent history that came out uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, and that's David Fincher's The Social Network. And it's framed in a very similar way where you have uh, a story that is told largely through uh, the same narrative techniques of flashbacks of court proceedings and mediations as a way to organize and structure the history with the emotional content in between. And thinking about Oppenheimer in contrast to Fincher's film uh, really made it clear. And this is um, Nolan arguing that uh, uh, there are two paths to history through the film. the uh, A path of history of emotional truth and a formal history represented by the two opposing styles of the frame, framing. The color uh, sequences are filled with emotion, whereas the black and white uh, sequences are uh, largely devoid of emotion. And not only that, you have a very specific type of black and white that the cinematographer Hoyt Van Hoytema uses, where there's a lot of high contrast and a lot of sharp uh, lighting. There's not like a whole lot of, you don't get like a lot of emotionalized, low-key, noir-like lighting from these backgrounds. And Nolan, I think, is also arguing with this uh, strategy 
that memories and recollections are one form of not only one form of historical record, but one perhaps one of the dominant uh, forms of historical record in the 20th and now into the 21st century. The way it's structured, it's kind of like Pulp Fiction, where you, as a viewer afterwards, you're putting it back into order. And, you know, anytime a film is engaging audiences in that way, I mean, that's what we want, right? We don't want the Punch and Judy show. We want something where we're involved, like we are part of it. We're thinking it through. And so the structure really brings us in to make sense of that. There's a scene, it's really interesting. So earlier in the film, when we're seeing Oppenheimer, it's sort of, it's a flash forward in the film. So it's a flash forward to a scene that we're gonna see later when he gives a speech after the bomb has been dropped, which is a very powerful scene and people are stomping their feet in excitement. So it's a flash forward in the structure of the film to the scene that hasn't happened yet. And yet it's a flashback. So it's like moving, forward and backward in the structure of, of the film. So th those kinds of things are really, really fascinating. And then you're kind of piecing it to how does it actually link up to him in his life where we see him in the film. So those kinds of aspects are incredibly fascinating. And the use of sound was really remarkable. This, so this film really rewards repeat viewings. And the way that I've gone about all of these films is to try to go in really pure the first time, de definitely not reading any reviews, not wanting to know what other people think, and then trying to research it and watching it a second time. And with Napoleon and Killers of the Flower Moon, the second time I kind of went in with muted expectations. And so I thought they were a bit better on the second viewing, but I wouldn't say that it gave that much more. And yet going into Oppenheimer after being exposed to the American Prometheus book, there's so many details or things that are said, and then they're in the film and they make sense. This is going to be a major spoiler, but in uh, Jean Tatlock, who I want to talk more about, um, I'd like to talk about women in Oppenheimer, but Jean Tatlock's looks like a suicide, but there's also a sense that maybe it wasn't a suicide and maybe there were people that wanted to take her out because of her communist associations. It was a note. Chloral hydrate in her blood. And I'm wondering if either of you two saw, and I wouldn't have seen it in the theater, except with, without the ability to rewind and play it back slowly, that there are black gloved hands pushing her head into the bathtub. Did you see that in that scene? Yes, I Oh, did. yes. Yeah. yeah. So on the first viewing, I didn't see it. Um, and on the second viewing, I was looking for it because I knew there was potentially foul play. That, I think, is a very impressive way of staging uh, her suicide and, or murder, as it may be, simply because it's so ambiguous. And it's just, a you know, the first time we see it, it looks like it's just her in the tub. Uh, the second time we see it, it's got the, the you've got the black gloves uh, holding her head down. And uh, I think her uh, death is, uh, in fact, as the book points out, too, it's very suspicious. And uh, the, uh, the CIA was uh, in the military were not, um, they weren't innocent of doing assassinations and things like that. And uh, that could well have been the case there. Another thing is in the book, they talk about that it was a 100 seconds between the explosion of Trinity and the sound. And then I thought, 
I, I bet Christopher Nolan, he, he just might have done the 100 seconds. And so I went in and I watched it again and I'm 30 seconds in. I'm like, is he going to do it? I don't know. Like, surely he's not going to hold it. Because as we know, 100 seconds in film, that's that's long. <laughs> and then getting, you know, 50 seconds. Oh, wow. And it, he does. He does. And now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. The sound, the sound of the feet stamping is a leitmotif uh, acoustically. Uh, it comes, we don't know what it is uh, at first. In fact, it is present in the very opening montage of the beautiful shots of the, of the huge fireballs uh, that uh, we get at the very beginning of the film uh, that the, this is the stomping of the feet which in the diegesis turns out to be the people uh, celebrating the uh, the firing uh, the, I'm sorry the palming uh, that uh, had taken place it's the scientists and Wilson almost all calling oppie 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 and then stomping their feet in enthusiasm well that is uh, a kind of um, it, it that acoustic motif uh, is there at the very beginning of the film when we see the fireball it's always associated with the bombs it's always associated with what with Oppenheimer's guilty conscience really is what it amounts to it's a weapon of attack with no defensive value deterrence deterrence do we really need more deterrence than our current arsenal of atomic bombs you, you drown in 10 feet of water or, or 10,000 what's the difference we can already drown us it's incredible and so yeah and just words like lines and things that people said that that are in american prometheus the book they show up in the film and it's so rewarding and you see new things when you watch it again and there's a lot of depth of thought and one thing i really noticed in the film the second time too is that you know it seems to be a kind of race against the Nazis, like man against society and man against man, but wouldn't it have been more of a struggle of him against himself? And, th and that is what it is in the end. And that final scene where Christopher Nolan draws so much attention to that pivotal scene between Oppenheimer and Einstein, because it's something that caused Strauss so much frustration, is that that question Oppenheimer it, it was a struggle it is man against himself and how torn up he was about his part in in creating the nuclear bomb whose whose work is this tellers what do you take it to mean neutrons smash into nucleus releasing neutrons to smash into other nuclei criticality Point of no return, massive explosive force. But this time, the chain reaction doesn't stop. It would ignite the atmosphere. When we detonate an atomic device, we might start a chain reaction that destroys the world. We know that Nolan wanted everyone to see it in a 70 millimeter at the theater, uh, biggest possible screen, and to have the full sound experience as well but in terms of the visuals it is really defined by close-ups it's defined by these tight choker close-ups on oppenheimer mainly but on the other characters too 
it's an interesting dialectic, I suppose, between the vastness of the screen, the vastness of the universe, and then all of it kind of being concentrated in the visage of uh, Oppenheimer and with those beautifully expressive eyes that uh, Killian Murphy has. Uh, that I found to be a really nice tension visually in the film. I saw the film in 70 millimeter when it came out, and this was like, of course, a major selling point at the time. You could, a uh, major marketing point for the film where you could watch it either in IMAX, you could watch it in 70 millimeter, you could watch it 35, or you could watch it uh, on a digital projection uh, and with websites and articles uh, touting the uh, pluses and minuses of uh, each types of viewings. But when you have something that's really really touted as being like a 70 millimeter or IMAX experience it implies that you know we're going to get some David Lean-esque visuals and we certainly did in several moments but yeah by and large you know this it was a uh, not only close-ups but uh, the human figures dominating uh, the landscapes and sometimes in tight quarters and to me it felt and this became more pronounced on my second and third viewing of the film, uh, is that the human figures in the film, Oppenheimer and the other characters, they become this sort of dueling nuclei. And that's not only really becomes kind of a metaphor for the bomb itself, but Nolan is positioning that form of narration, that form of visual narration, as being a metaphor for history itself. And again, coming through beautifully in so many close-ups uh, of human faces, intercut with uh, events that uh, are out of sequence and that haven't happened yet, but also with recurring visual metaphors that reinforce this. Uh, one, one scene in particular that I didn't really notice the first time around was uh, the scene early on in the film where uh, Oppenheimer is briefly looking at uh, Picasso's painting, A Woman Sitting with Arms Crossed from 1937. And it's sort of almost like he's mesmerized, he's hypnotized, and that becomes really kind of, again, just sort of like a visual motif for the film, sort of the mesmerizing close-ups and also the idea of like the totality of history being written on through tra uh, the face and transmuted through the eyes and that's something that we've seen in so many different uh, historical films largely war films that uh, nolan repurposes very effectively here yeah and um something that i mentioned about killers of the flower moon it, and this is also the case in Napoleon, where you have these movie stars really getting in the way of the absorption and the history. And to me, like, that's not functioning in a reflexive way to remind the audience of the artifice or the narrativization of history. It's just blocking you from entering into the history at all. Whereas in this film, the incredible performances and so many movie stars, but really, really well done. And Robert Downey Jr. as Strauss has so much charisma. And I think it's good because it slightly lessened the arch villain that Strauss has made into in the film and also in the book that's the source for the film. You know, obviously Strauss had a vendetta against Oppenheimer, but I do think he's not quite the villain that he's made out to be in, you know, in these versions of the history. And he advocated strongly for the U.S. to protect European Jews in Germany in the 1930s. He advocated for the 
the bomb not to be dropped on a city in Japan, but to be demonstrated on an un, in an un, unpopulated place. So, and it's not to say Strauss is a great guy. I mean, I don't think we would, you know, want to have vendettas against people and bring down people who had worked so hard for their country. You could question the ethics of making a nuclear bomb, but you couldn't question Oppenheimer's commitment to the country. But when you put it in the perspective of the time and people, you know, afraid of the Soviets under Stalin and fearful of communists, it's understandable. It wasn't just that he was a baddie. So then Robert Downey Jr., I think, just lends this sort of charm to him that lessens the the way he's portrayed in the film in a way that's great. I thought Matt Damon, although he bears very little resemblance to Leslie Groves, who he's playing, was wonderful. He's kind of got this comic element in the film. He's incredibly likable and the way Groves would covered and supported, gave cover to Oppenheimer and supported him, I thought was fantastic. I thought Emily Blunt was fantastic. And it's interesting because in the first viewing, I had more sympathy for her. You know, she seems to have a, a problem with alcohol, and that's not a moral failing. That is something that ha- that happens. And then her children are always crying. And I read that as, you know, I know what it's like to be around crying children, and it's hard. So it made me sympathize with her. And the way she, you know, was telling her husband he had to stand up for himself, I, th- I thought that was fantastic. And then Um, knowing more about the story and being exposed to American Prometheus, then you have a little less sympathy for her. She was very disliked by a lot of people. And then I watched it again, and I saw it a bit differently. I didn't see sympathizing with her because her children were crying. I saw, oh, maybe her children are crying because they're so neglected. And um, she just comes off with this edge, and she's just a sort of delicious character. She's really someone to contend with, and she's interesting, and I don't think you can totally discount her. I just that there was so much depth to that portrayal. Also wonderful to see Josh Hartnett, who plays Ernest Lawrence. He was a big actor in the 1990s, and I definitely missed seeing him. He's fantastic. Matthew Modine, like all these these actors, Gary Oldman, you know, playing Truman. And then we're thinking of Winston Churchill. Like there's these layers of historical films <laughs> kind of being enacted there. So I thought the use of celebrity in this film was perfect because we do get absorbed in this world. And like you were saying, uh, Robert, like we're seeing these close-ups, but we're also seeing the universe. And it's mm-hmm. like there's, and yeah. it's, and it all it works. Like it's, it really works. Uh, I think your characterization of the acting styles and of the performance of uh, all of the figures that you just mentioned uh, is excellent, Kim. I will uh, dispute with you just a bit about Straws, though. I think he truly is an outsized villain here. I think his motivation in persecuting Oppenheimer came from the most petty, vain orientation to life and to society that could be imagined. From reading American Prometheus, I learned that Strauss kept a, a journal of every slight of every insult, he would record them. He would uh, he would hold on to these things. His was a personal vindictiveness expressed toward Abi. I don't think he ever felt that Oppenheimer was funneling secrets to the Soviets or uh, was in any way really a security risk. I suppose his political motivation would be that Oppenheimer was his stature in society was so great, and here he was arguing for uh, you know a nuclear 
uh, treaty uh, and against the proliferation of nuclear weapons uh, and doing so very passionately and, and apparently quite effectively. And so the, the establishment wanted to shut him up on that line because uh, this was not the way that the government was going. And Strauss could kind of persecute Oppenheimer with that as a kind of cover. But I think the real vendetta came from his own sense of being slighted and his paranoia about what Oppenheimer had said to Einstein, which we discover later didn't have anything to do with Strauss. Yeah, I think he's I mean, he's not a, he's not like a full on McCarthy, but so he's but he's adjacent. So, I mean, yeah, I de he's definitely petty. And I and I and it's it was fantastic to see that play out where we all know that um, either that experience or people like that, that assume the worst and spiral in this completely petty and vindictive and sort of narcissistic way yeah absolutely i i and i do, again i do think the film is good in that they they do show these instances where uh oppenheimer is is kind of rude to strauss but it doesn't mean that it's excusing strauss's behavior but it's just lending a little more complexity to what makes people vindictive like you know he's already starting out as a petty person and it really gets you know oppenheimer really gets under his skin one thing that I always, whenever I watch a, a historical film that I always look for is how much the filmmakers use history or the historical tapestry as this projection space for the audience on an emotional level to find recognizable and relatable uh, emotions. And some of the, some that were mentioned just here, narcissism and pettiness uh, being a few uh, it's not a deal breaker for me whether or not, you know, I'm going to like a film, you know, if the filmmakers choose to go down this path. But I always find it interesting when they do it. And I think that uh, Nolan is doing it exceptionally well in Oppenheimer. And, and one scene where it this kind of gets the, hammered home strongly is, uh, and Kim, you uh, pointed out uh, Gary Oldman's uh, almost unrecognizable uh, portrayal as a uh, Harry Truman, just the moment where he uh, he meets Oppenheimer and then uh, towards the end of their conversation leans directly into the camera and, and as a direct address, not just to Oppenheimer, but a dire direct address to the spectator, waves a tissue. And then later we get that, we just hear him uh, say, don't let that crybaby back in here as uh Oppenheimer's leaving so you know to both of your points you know I think you know as a history as a form of projection space for recognizable human emotions is something that uh, you know I have a tendency to look for and here it comes through strongly. There is also a kind of a mythic engagement there's a, a set of mythic metaphors that plays out throughout the film and of course the most obvious is the Prometheus theme which is heavily enunciated uh, throughout the work. Uh, the giver of fire, the giver of life, someone who was, who was then punished for all eternity. The other uh, mythic metaphor is the Krishna-Vishnu metaphor. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. But there's also a Judeo-Christian set of mythic metaphors playing throughout the film. And this comes through in certain lines of dialogue, I suppose. The snake under the rock uh, being one of the early instances, the poison apple, the column of fire, which gets mentioned, and the, the naming of the, of the test uh, as the Trinity test. So I, I'm really interested in the way 
Nolan is able to weave these three kind of mythic references and mythic stories into the portrait of Oppenheimer and into the portrait of the period. And one doesn't cancel out the other. They are integrated together, synthesized in several scenes. But in other scenes, there's there's a kind of very direct way in which these moments are invoked. Kim, let's turn to uh, more towards the characters uh, in the film. I'm especially interested in hearing uh, your take on uh, Gene, as I think, uh, apart from Oppenheimer himself, I think uh, uh, the character of Gene Tavlock has garnered, I think, more op-eds analysis and criticisms uh really than you know any other character besides oppenheimer here the portrayal of women in the film is really interesting so as i said i thought that uh kitty oppenheimer was a really wonderful portrayal and emily blunt didn't even look like herself just a fantastic performance and a really complex woman i there was an article in the new york times about how kitty oppenheimer isn't likable in the film and like i guess emily blunt was responding to that which i find like really sexist who says women have to be likable like i it's so crazy so i thought kitty fabulous. Also, I really thought it was great to see Leanna Woods, who's the female scientist who worked on the bomb. And she's not like pushed forward. She's not, they don't try to make her have a bigger part in the proceedings, but seeing her there and even you notice that she's the one female sort of in the room. And I I thought that was fantastic to see her there. And the way they portrayed that was great. But with uh, Jean Tatlock, I had a bit more of a problem because, uh, and it's nothing to do with the performance. I thought Florence Pugh was great. It's at the level of the script. I didn't expect to see you today. Do I have to make an appointment? I told you, Rob, no more flowers. I don't understand what you want from me. I don't want anything from you. After seeing it the first time, I thought, okay, who was Jean Tatlock? Well, she seemed like a topless cocktail waitress because <laughs> we see her, you know, in a party serving drinks, and then we see her topless, and we see her topless, and we see her, she's not always topless, but often. And it made me th- think about the fact Oppenheimer ran with the women that were in his orbit were you know, they're all very educated. Jean Tatlock was a medical doctor and and a psychiatrist. And um, so you have to think in those days, that's an, it's, it's an even more impressive. Uh, And they do talk about Freud, you know, if you knew, you know, if you could read American Prometheus or knew about Jean Tatlock, you'd pick up on the fact why they're talking, why when she's topless, they're talking about Freud. But if you don't know that, then I don't think you're going to pick up on that. So I think she's undersold. I also feel like there's an ethical issue with pride. And you guys might disagree with me on this, but I think when you take a private person and you show them having sex, I I kind of feel like, um, you know, if you're making a film about Caligula or you're making a film about even like a, a movie star that, that, that might be a bit different, but I felt like it wasn't necessary to, and, and to see her twice topless in, in a scene like that. And then I thought it was really interesting. I actually thought it was really cool to see Oppenheimer sort of, he's naked in the, uh, when he's in the, this he- hearing and that, you know, is showing how, you know, he feels so, 
under attack and so undefended. And of course, he's always obscured sitting down. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, it's always very um, appropriate the way he's being presented when he's naked. Um, and then and then they add to that scene, Gene Tatlock, you know, on his lap, like grinding on his lap. And so to me, I just think there is um, a kind of level of respect that we should extend to real people and not use them in that way. So I, I just felt like Gene Tatlock was sort of used for like sexual titillation in the film. And I, d I thought that was unfair to her memory. It, it, there is uh, a lot to be said about um, this one point that Kim is making that I think resonates across uh, a lot of films recently, uh, historical or otherwise, this sort of um, the concept of misuse of historical people. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear your guys' opinion on this uh, because I was actually fascinated with those scenes. Maybe it just <laughs> speaks to my own uh predilections i'm not sure who knows um but the association of gene as this kind of very sexualized figure and the vishnu krishna theme i think is something we uh, that i, I want to spend a little thought on uh she pulls the book off the library shelf and she asks him to read the words and he, he reads the sanskrit uh now i am become death destroyer of worlds and thunder in the background uh, as he's saying that. So every time that line comes up, and I think it, com it comes up at least once more right after the Trinity test, uh, he enunciates it. Uh, it's associated with her. It's associated with Gene Tatlock. It's associated ultimately with uh, Oppenheimer's guilt, his feelings of guilt. And uh, the way I've re read this, and the way I read the scene in the uh, in the interrogation of Oppenheimer, and that's what I'll call it, when he's naked, and then, as Kim, you said that uh, Gene is then perched on his lap, and they're having sex, and Gene and Emily Blunt, um, Kitty, exchange this deep, deep look, and it just it it made me wonder okay whose whose uh, subjectivity is being expressed here who is who is imagining this scene uh is it Emma, uh, you know many critics have said that this is the kitty character uh being jealous it's a kind of staging of her jealousy i think that's a little weak uh, a little soft um to me it goes with this idea of the punishment of Oppenheimer and he's a so and he was very interested in Freud as you as you said uh, Kim and very interested attended uh, lots of meetings of psychoanalysts and people interested in the subject so here's a, an association of sex guilt and punishment uh, and it's as Christian and as Freudian or as it could possibly be yeah, I definitely see it. I mean, I I think it works narratively that that is a, a scene that shows his humiliation. Like he's in this hearing. It's already awful. His wife is sitting behind him and he's being asked about this affair, which we also have to think how much responsibility does Oppenheimer bear? Although, you know, he might not have known you know, how he was being tracked. I'm, you know, I'm not sure, but that he imperiled her by continuing to see her yeah, while true. he was working. I, I thought that exchange of looks between uh, Gene and uh, Kitty uh, was really powerful. And I take your point about the, uh, what, I, I don't think it's gratuitous, but I take your point about the sexualizing of the Gene character and the fact that her accomplishments weren't mentioned, her stature in, in her own profession wasn't mentioned. 
uh, and should have been. I would have preferred that, learning what I did. But that look that they exchange is so dramatic and so powerful, and it's really one of the only times in the entire film where Oppenheimer's face is not visible. You know, it is not a close-up on Oppenheimer's face. Instead, it's the two women that we're responding to there. Yeah, another thing about the film that I think, just to veer back to the sort of what Nolan's doing with the structure, is that a history, according to Hayden White, will either be implauded as a as a tragedy or as a romance, which is basically like an adventure. It's not actually romantic. Or as a comedy, meaning it will have a happy ending, uh, things will be resolved positively, or as a satire. And the film is so fascinating because it plays out almost the entire time as a romance. We have this hero this uh, and this group of people who are trying to do this impossible thing and, and trying to uh, race against the Nazis to build a bomb. But then it turns at the very end and becomes a tragedy in that last, that again, that pivotal scene that we've already seen referenced before, that scene that in the film is the seed of Strauss's vindictiveness that we see revealed as the core of the tragedy of the film. So again, that goes to the depth of what Nolan's doing here and the, and the structure of the film as well. We have not not only uh, interest, an interesting structure with the, in terms of flashbacks, but we also have this almost kind of rosebud moment with uh, Albert Einstein and what was said to Albert Einstein that set him off. Albert, when I came to you with those calculations, we thought we might start a chain reaction that would destroy the entire world. I remember it well. What happened? I believe we did. Just uh, curious uh, if you had any thoughts about uh, that moment with Einstein. I would just say it landed harder, like it made more impact with me the second time when I watched it. The second time I watched it, I feel like I thought more about Einstein and what was going through his mind as he walked away. And, and you know, he doesn't even see Strauss because he's so caught up in what Oppenheimer has said to him uh, that, the, that, you know, how wrapped up Einstein was as he walked away. And they, this is the turn to utter tragedy. I mean, the tragedy has been building because Oppenheimer is, you know, a great intellect who gave so much to his country. And then, you know, even maybe more heroically than, you know, the Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. he fights so strenuously to try to, you know, divert nuclear war. And so that's when things start sliding into tragedy, I guess. And then it just sort of peaks in that scene. The uh, Niels Bohr character, I thought, was really well done also. And he, uh, from reading American Prometheus, I know that he and Oppenheimer really had, they worked as a team to try to abate the spread of nuclear weapons and the arms race that was almost certain to unfold, and of course did and has unfolded. Uh, But Bohr uh, was the first one to kind of educate uh, Oppenheimer on the uh, on what was ha- going to happen after, what was going to happen after the bomb was successfully built and used. Uh, and so he was onto this years before Oppenheimer was. 
And so that that moment, that celebratory moment, which then turns into this persecutory uh, nightmare scenario that is existentially awful, uh, existentially harmful, existentially brutal as anything I've ever seen rendered on film uh, is is a point where, and this I think actually goes to John's point earlier, it's a point where we get not just the intellectual awareness, but we get a an emotional rendering of his realization of what he has done and what he has caused and so that that puts it in a in a very cinematic frame which i think is absolutely beautiful in just drawing things to a close here i'm curious uh because this film exists within a constellation of other fascinating works on, on the same topic and uh including of course uh the a book from which uh, Nolan largely drew upon. Uh, I'm curious if uh, either of you had any recommendations for our listeners uh, for if you enjoyed Oppenheimer, things to uh, look at further. I, I One thing I wanted to bring to our attention from the book, so I would recommend American Prometheus. I listened to it as an audiobook. It's a 27-hour recording. It's a major doorstop of a book, so it's over 700 pages. <laughs> so if you have... 27 hours to spare, then the audio version is good. There's some kind of disjunctive uh, narration sometimes where they seem to have just sort of patched in and you can, there's a different inflection, but that doesn't happen that often. And it's, it's a good reading. It's definitely worth listening to. Uh, to me, one of the most captivating parts of the book is the, the description of the Ethical Culture Society, which was the school that Oppenheimer went to as a boy. And that his youth, you know, it, any historical film has to choose, you know, what they're going to portray. And I think the choices were made really well here. There, but there's so much to choose from in that aspect of you get a slice of, uh, you know, New York in the 19 teens and 1920s and the kind of humanist ideas that in it's really fascinating so i think that it's it's definitely worth a listen there was um a quote in the preface that i thought was so resonant and really gets to the heart of what nolan's film is about so uh, george kennan who is a diplomat and an ambassador um, and a friend of oppenheimer's said this on no one did there ever rest with greater cruelty the dilemmas evoked by the recent conquest by human beings of a power over nature out of all proportion to their moral strength. And it's such a powerful quote, and it's what we see Nolan render and what he's looking at in Oppenheimer's life. It's what the film is about. Whenever I watch a historical film, I always think of a quote, I don't know if I've mentioned it already, but uh, Robert Burgoyne in the Hollywood historical film in, I think, the introduction talks about how historical films stamp the present on every frame. And I just think that's such a poetic description, so evocative, and it's just always on my mind. And it is the question when it comes to historical films. And when I ask myself, you know, what is calling to us in the present about this story? 
I think one of them would be that related to the quote of our technological powers being so beyond our moral ability to deal with it and that it's something that we as human beings have to grapple in order to survive. And then I think the other aspect, uh, the present being stamped in every frame that is in the film, is how we treat people. So in this film, we see, um, you know, an intelligent man, a, you know, man who served his country, was dedicated, get torn apart over his philosophical beliefs. Being a, a philosophical, theoretical Marxist and a, you know, socialist sympathizer, which is what he was, he was, in, he wasn't a Stalinist, he was never a member of the Communist Party, you know, to throw somebody to the curb the way he was, that that's wrong, and that we have to be able to embrace different points of view, and that his philosophical interests in socialism, um, you know, reading the works of Marx and Lenin and his interest in the Spanish Civil War, all of these things are not beyond the pale. They're not things you throw people overboard for. So I think the film asks us to just treat according people far more respect. There's a way in which this film is in a dialogue, I would say, with uh, Nolan's earlier film, just earlier, Dunkirk. And Dunkirk has this very lonely, existential, you know, chill, chilling feeling to it. It's, I'd say, 95% of the film, it almost looks like, you know, you're in an existential landscape, like there's no exit, no escape. Uh, I wrote a paper on it where I compared the uh, soldiers on the beach stranded at Dunkirk uh, to a kind of a, a Giacometti set of sculptures. They're, they're uh, these lonely, isolated, uncommunicative figures who seem to have lost all hope. But then the film ends happily. They do get rescued, and it turns into a celebratory moment at the very end. Oppenheimer, in some ways, goes in the opposite direction. It starts in a more uh, conventionally uh, upbeat mode. You've got a scientific problem. You've got the greatest team of scientists ever assembled. Uh, they are working com both competitively and cooperatively to uh, come up with, you know, uh, just astonishing discoveries. Uh, and it's got this kind of we can do it uh, aspect to it. But then it turns and it turns into, uh, again, a kind of an existential portrait that uh, it becomes increasingly pessimistic and increasingly harrowing. Uh, so it's almost like he's he's setting out the two bookmarks here, uh, both framed, I suppose, by World War II and then by the Cold War um, uh, in the case of Oppenheimer. But uh, it's they make for a, a very interesting pair because I think the, ultimately the mood that I take away from Dunkirk and from Oppenheimer are quite similar. There's a darkening going on uh, that is, um, that I think is communicated very effectively. Yeah, and I just want to say, I thought Dunkirk was an excellent film. And again, he's he's doing something so interesting with time. And he, you know, he's using the different timelines between the, you know, the combat in the air and what's happening on the ground and you have these multiple timelines and they don't fit neatly back together and that in itself is such a contribution to you know a, a historical way of thinking that we can't fit history back 
neatly and it, it it's it's not gonna it's not gonna work um so i i thought that was a fantastic use of time and structure in dunkirk that you know he uses in a different way here and i would recommend for anyone if you haven't seen memento to start there with you know christopher nolan's first feature film engagement and it's all about memory and time such a amazing experience to see the question that that he brings up about identity and memory and you know who are we and just a captivating film i have two recommendations uh maybe tangentially related to Oppenheimer, but it's uh, really where we see a few of the ideas that Nolan plays around with in Oppenheimer being played out and explored in very different arenas. Uh, first recommendation, probably very much on the nose, but I would say Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove in many ways looks at where we have the character of the mad scientist of Dr. Strangelove as being the unchecked id of the Manhattan Project as he's being presented. Uh, and the other recommendation is a documentary, uh, found footage documentary from 1982 called Atomic Cafe, directed by Kevin Rafferty. And listeners can find that uh, streaming through Amazon Prime. Uh, and this is uh, where some of the ideas that are expressed largely towards the end of Nolan's film are played out through the form of re very much a postmodernist remix media culture through the way that Rafferty approaches uh, the idea of atomic panic at the height of the Reagan administration. Just rounding off here, um, we have a website recommendation. Uh, Kim, would you like to tell us a little bit more about that in our social media? Yeah, so we've uh, got a website associated with the podcast, so you can find it at movinghistories.com. Um, and there, there's a page for the podcast, but also has recommended readings. So if you're interested in historical films and readings in the field, you'll see a whole bunch of suggestions. There's also media links, other suggestions if you want to listen to other podcasts or see other um, websites that are looking at historical film, then then you can go over there. Um, we also have an Instagram, so please look up Moving Histories on Instagram. And what we are doing with that is that we want to have a conversation because that's what historical films are all about. You know, what, ha what have we done in the past? How do humans react in certain situations? in order to think about, you know, how we want to live in the present in order to do the do right for the future. So, you know, what we are hoping is that you will say what you what you think, what was your response, uh, whatever touched you about these films, we want to hear about it. That should be fun. Yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> so for Moving Histories, my name is John Trafton. You can find me at johntrafton.com and at johntraftonfilm on Instagram. I'm Kim Nelson. And I'm Robert Burgoyne. And this episode was edited by Nick Hector with music by Nine Inch Nails. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained?